Welcome to Amped Up. This is your host, Ryan Knight, and our guest today is Maximilian Alvarez. Maximilian is a podcaster, an editor, and an advocate for the working class. You can check out his podcast, Working People, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Maximilian, welcome to Amped Up. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, look, here we are in this moment of, of deep suffering, injustice, and inequality, and Congress is going on recess without reaching a coronavirus relief deal. They are going on summer vacation while the American people uh, are suffering. Both parties have failed us miserably, and all the suffering that we're seeing was a political choice. Both Republicans and Democrats chose to bail out their corporate donors and abandon the American people in the worst pandemic in modern history. And yet there is still this myth propagated mostly by corporate media that the Democratic Party is still the party of the working class or the party of the people, when just like the GOP, they have been the party of Wall Street, corporations, and the oligarchy for the past several decades. Uh, Maximilian, you wrote a stirring thread on Twitter this week, uh, which kind of deconstructs this. And I want to read a little bit of it and then get your, get your thoughts and have a, a bigger conversation around it. Um, you said that uh, Democrats are proudly the party of the technocratic class. They don't give a shit about working people, and I think they're happy to be rid of any sense of responsibility to pretend otherwise. But they'll also never admit that. Abandoning the working class has thrown the U.S. into chaos. The real story of Trump's uh, 2016 win was always the working class voters Democrats hemorrhaged, especially after 2012. Less so the key pockets Trump picked up in swing states. The entire Democratic strategy since then has been based on never ever learning their lesson from those lost voters. It is a strategy, a detestable one, but a strategy nonetheless. Instead of winning back the great mass of disaffected working people, they'll put all their chips on veering farther right, appealing to a sliver of never Trump Republicans and becoming the Republican Party of yesterday. Because that's honestly a better ideological fit for their establishment politics slash economics. They don't have to pretend to give a shit about working people anymore, and they don't want to. In fact, they actually see 2016 as a perfect reason to not put any stock in us at all. The only real lesson Democrats took away from 2016 was the unwashed masses can't be trusted. The working class voters they lost to Trump or the non-voting abyss only proved working people don't know what's good for them. Hence, Democrats' deep disdain for anything they see as populist. Um, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, um, do you want to expand further on how the Demo Democratic Party has abandoned the working class and how this has paved the way for Donald Trump and Republican fascism to step in? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll do my best, but I think um, you know, I, I think this is a story that goes back a ways and. You know, I think that, um, you know, I'm speaking very much in conversation with, you know, a lot of great uh, thinkers and critics um, and journalists who have been following this and covering it for quite some time. Um, you know, I guess if people want to look more into this, um, I'd highly recommend, you know, checking out the work of people like Tom Frank. I think he's got a new book out that pretty much, you know, like, uh, you know, is on the topic of the thread that, that you were just reading from. Um and, you know, like, I guess the, the, the thing that I would start with, right, is, you know, we, we, we tend to accept that, you know, the dynamics of the Democratic and Republican parties have changed significantly over time. 
right? I mean, like, you know, hopefully everyone knows, or at least I think a good chunk of people know that, you know, there was this kind of big shift um, around mid 20th century with the Civil Rights Act. You know, you had, you know, just these kind of famous stories about, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson, I believe, saying that, you know, with the Civil Rights Act that they had lost the, the South for a generation, right? You had this kind of switching of Southern Democrats to the Republican Party, um, you had the kind of shift in the Democratic Party itself. So we we accept the principle that like the parties that the two party system that we have isn't a static system, right? That these kinds of parties and the people who control them and the constituencies that they are representing um, and serving change over time. And I feel like we're at a moment where that same process has been occurring, but as far as the ways that we understand what the Democratic Party is, we seem to be stuck in a kind of, you know, timeless sense of who the Democrats were 30 years ago, which is very much not who they were, <laughs> who they are now. Right. Right. And I think, you know, the, the there's a there's an old like philosophical kind of um a thought experiment, uh, if you'll if you'll permit me to get a little dweeby here for a second. But Please. it's uh I love it's called the yeah, so it's called the the ship of Theseus, right? And you know the thought experiment is that like say you have you know a, a wooden ship sailing on the ocean, and then if you have two other ships kind of sailing alongside it, and piece by piece you start to replace um, you know the, the the boards and the lines and the sails of the original ship. To the point that it still stays afloat, but at the end of the process, there isn't a single original piece of the original ship left. It, um, so the kind of question that the ship of Theseus uh, thought experiment asks is, is it the same ship? And, you know, after, after all that, after swapping out all of its original parts, um, what do we call it? And I feel like that's very much kind of what has happened with the Democratic Party over these past decades, as you mentioned. Right? You know, like with uh, after getting their their butts kicked by Reagan and Bush Senior, the New Democrats really, you know, kind of pushed hard on this third wave, um, which which really amounts to just kind of the strategy of beating Republicans by being Republicans, but calling right. yourself Democrats. Yep. And and these are the people who have taken over the party. These are the people, you know, like who like this is this is firmly the soil in which, you know, politicians like Joe Biden, uh, like the Clintons and even Obama, you know, like are rooted in. This is the Democratic Party in which they have built their careers and through which they have shaped policy over these past decades. But the thing is, is that we've just kind of accepted that that is just what the Democratic Party is and has to be. And in a sense, the way that we talk about it, we kind of assume that that's always what it was. And I guess like what I'm constantly trying to kind of um, remind people of is that it wasn't always this way and it doesn't have to be this way. But that the, the, the kind of Democratic Party that we have ended up with, the Democratic Party that has been so ineffectual at kind of combating the just tremendous forces that are oppressing and exploiting and even killing working people around the country and, you know, around the world even, right, if we want to kind of branch out into kind of imperialist um, international policy, um, you know, 
this this is the Democratic Party that we've ended up with. Um, and it doesn't serve the people that we were taught to believe the Democratic Party was intended to serve. And there are real historical reasons for that. They have actually, over these decades, truly abandoned what used to be uh, their base in the working class um, with unions, with economic policies that were you know, more geared towards the improvement of the lot of the working class. In the 90s, that really changed. And, you know, we've really just kind of been heading down this path since then, where the Democratic Party has, if not entirely abandoned the working class, at least progressively made it less and less of a priority to serve the needs of the working class, the immediate and long term needs of the working class. Because they've been operating on this assumption that they're at least they're not as bad as Republicans. So working class people, if they're going to vote at all, might as well go to the Democrats. Like this is this is kind of, I think, the the elitist conceit that, you know, like has led the Democrats to not learn their lesson from the working class voters who have defected from the party or who have stopped voting altogether and stopped seeing any hope Um in the political, the electoral process at all. Yeah, you know, one thing that is some, you know, I used to be more liberal, I'd say like four years ago. And one of the things that finally woke me up is I started to see that that politicians, you know, corporate Democrats like Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi, you know, they speak the language of the oppressed, you know, they co-op the language but then they don't match it up with actual policies and actions that help the oppressed or that help the working class. You know, Obama sedated us with platitudes of hope and change for eight years while he was turning around and handing more power to billionaires, corporations, and Wall Street. And so it's like this bait and switch where they get you with this, you know, this kind of dreamy talking and platitudes, but they don't have any action to actually back up their platitudes. Right. And so then so, so it's like it's all like this big illusion. And uh, I think people are starting to finally get it because, you know, look, n things just progressively keep getting worse for the last 40 years. You know, the working people have carried this nation on their back and, and yet things have gotten worse and worse for them. Meanwhile, the rich keep getting richer and richer and richer. So it's like it's it's not all adding up. Right. And and again, like. There are concrete reasons for that, right? I, I think I think one of the hardest processes that all of us need to go through um, is sort of disentangling uh, our expectations of the party, our you know disentangling our tendency to believe what the party uh, says at face value, and to kind of step back and try to look at it. As for what it is, right? you know, like what what does it actually do, right? And and you're right. I think that that more and more people are just getting, you know, sadly fed up, or they're seeing kind of no recourse um, that's available to them through you know official politics because they're tired of being lied to because of all that lip service that is paid to you know the working class and the issues that you know impact our lives on a day-to-day -day basis and that includes an entire you know laundry list of issues you know because the working class this is something that we stress on uh, my podcast working people 
you know, we stress it all the time and we try to let it um, kind of come through in the people that we talk to. But the working class is incredibly diverse. It's the most diverse class. It's the it's the biggest class in this country. And it is, you know, the people who, you know, live and work in this country and make this country run off, you know, their their labor and who make those profits for, you know, the, the people who run our society. You know, they there are a lot of kind of, you know, problems that compound, you know, their, you know, struggle just to kind of get by on, you know, meager wages as they, you know, since the 80s have been sharing less and less of the wealth that they generate. And more and more of that wealth has gone to the top. And that process by which all that wealth is going to the top and that income share is very much not, you know, kind of being equally distributed, right, that happens because of concrete policies that politicians on uh, the left and the right have pushed. And I think that this is another thing that people are getting fed up with, to, to your point, right, is, you know, I feel like my entire lifetime, the narrative that we hear, right, and this is, this is kind of being concretized and put front and center right now with the kind of, um, with Joe Biden's selection of Kamala Harris as his running mate, right, is, you know, you get this kind of ongoing strategy from the Democrats, which is to play um, a sort of play in a sort of uh, defensive posture over and over again. When they're not in power, they say that, you know, like they can't push for the things that they want to because Republicans, you know, like will will just stonewall them. And when they are in power, they don't push for those things either because, you know, they want to compromise with Republicans. And so it's kind of like a lose-lose situation for the working people who are constantly being told by the Democratic Party that they want to represent them, that they want to fight for them, that the things that they need are always forever delayed to some sort of future that never actually comes, right? You know, even even when, you know, like the, the Democrats kind of had total control over the government, you know, there was still, you know, like, they were not able to kind of push for the sort of, you know, substantive change that people needed. Instead, they bailed out Wall Street and they contributed to this process of disadvantaging and disempowering working people. Oh, you mean from 2008 to 2010 when they controlled uh, all the branches of government and uh, the only thing that we got out of it was a for-profit uh, predatory healthcare system that was a giant gift to the mass, to the insurance companies. <laughs> you mean that time? That one, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, and and I think you're hitting on a key point though. Is and again, this is why Democrats lose. It's they want to sit and blame the left or blame the independents or you know they want to actually blame the voters instead of looking within and taking inventory and understanding that like it's not the the voters. You know, you or me aren't the ones running for president. Like Joe Biden is the one running for president in 2020 and Hillary Clinton was the one running for the Democratic Party in 2016. And it is their job as candidates to go out and earn people's vote. But this whole strategy they've co-opted is, okay, let's just take the left and, and you know, let's take these working class for granted because they want policies that our corporate donors don't want. And so Let's just sit and say, oh, but the Republicans are so bad, you're never gonna vote for them. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna run a center-right strategy, play to all our corporate donors, give Wall Street everything it wants, 
And then we're just going to expect y'all to just show up and vote for us because the Republicans are so bad. You'd never do that. And then in the process, they try to chase a few moderate voters and completely take their base for granted. And why I think it's such a failed strategy and, and why it, it has resulted and enabled and emboldened Donald Trump and, and the rise of fascism in the Republican Party is if you look and see how Republicans play the game, they do it the completely opposite way. They energize their base. They, the Republicans and Donald Trump feed their base what they want. You know, they run on an unapologetic, you know, white nationalist agenda, essentially, you know, a quasi-fascist, far-right agenda, and they don't apologize for it. You know, hardline on immigration. And, and then meanwhile, you've got the, these corporate Democrats, and they're running away from the progressive policies that their voters want. So one party is literally feeding its base what it wants, and that while the Democrats are essentially hating their base and not giving their base anything they want, and then they wake up on election day or the day after, and they're like, how did we lose? And well, it's like, well, you know, maybe you lost because you didn't energize your actual voters who want to, you know, show up for you. And then after they lost in 2016, the very same voters they took for granted, the independents and the leftists who want to see real progressive change, they had the audacity for the last four years to blame the voters they took for granted for the reason they lost. And like, that's just not how life works. Like, you cannot blame the very people you took for granted when you lose. Like, newsflash, go out and earn their votes. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it speaks to... It speaks to what I was trying to kind of um, articulate in that that Twitter thread that, that you mentioned earlier, right, is like trying to kind of understand, you know, what what is underneath all of this, right? Because like you said, like I, I kind of – my allegiance is to the rank and file. My allegiance is to working people, right? And so like I'm not going to pretend um, – I'm not going to defend, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the DSA or anyone for things that I don't think that they're doing right uh, just out of some kind of misplaced sense of, of – perpetual loyalty right you know my allegiance again you know is to working people and and my commitment is to building a world in which people don't have to struggle so hard just to get by and Wait, Tamad, to I be said, human. That's a quick question are you telling me that like you don't believe that we're all supposed to blindly follow and blindly swear our allegiance to a political party or a political figure I know it's it's a wild concept, uh, <laughs> but like uh, we're supposed yeah. to think for ourselves and fight for our own values and fight for policies that will actually help and transform the lives of working people. It's a it's a it's a radical idea, but I believe it's one worth fighting for. <laughs> Me too. No, and I say that very kind of sarcastically because we are in an we're operating a climate where I see the Democratic Party becoming just as authoritarian. As the Republican Party, it's almost like they're becoming Trump to beat Trump. Like they're screaming at people, vote blue no matter who. Doesn't matter what trash we throw at you, just vote for it. Doesn't matter if we, you know, that millions of people are struggling right now and this moment calls for revolutionary change and we're still peddling the same neoliberalism that got us here. You just vote for us no matter what. Like it's so authoritarian, it's so removed from like any kind of politics that would actually benefit the lives of the American people. It's maddening. Well, and it's, it's removed. I think you, you made this point beautifully earlier, you know, it's removed from reality itself. Right. I mean, mm, right. <clears throat> you know, the, this is, this is something that kind of, 
always gets me, especially in, you know, kind of tumultuous times like these, when we see on our TV screens, on our social media feeds, right, mainstream media and, you know, uh, official politicians kind of clutching their pearls about, uh, you know, riots happening or, quote unquote, looting kind of taking place in impoverished, uh, you know, in exploited neighborhoods. And then the the conversation immediately becomes like a moral one, like, you know, how are we how are we going to condemn this, right? You know, how are we going to kind of um, put our sort of moral stamp on what is happening in front of our eyes, which is just <clears throat> baffling to me because it misses the most obvious kind of uh, political question, which is, you know, like, look, you know, whatever you think about looting, the fact is that it's happening, right? And the fact is, is that, you know, this kind of stuff happens when, you know, it is it is a symptom of a society that is not functioning properly, right? And this is, this is a point that I've made about the um, kind of just unprecedented uprising that we've seen over this summer against the kind of police state that Democrats and Republicans have helped erect, uh, you know, over these past decades and that have disproportionately, you know, like hurt black, brown and indigenous communities, but the working class in general, these, these uprisings, right, are taking place it, it, it like I said, it truly in an unprecedented way. People in in droves, you know, came out to the streets during a pandemic. Not only in this country, uh, but you know, even around the world. Um, and we 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 spent so much of our time kind of talking about who the good and the bad protesters were, um, and and what this kind of all you know meant for democracy. And I was like that. That's a secondary conversation because what the the most obvious point that's staring us in the face is that like look that that amount of people coming to the streets and risking their lives during a pandemic to to beg for their themselves and their neighbors to not be killed by state forces that is a sign of a deeply sick and hurting society and in fact the police state that has expanded over these decades is the. It's the pain management system that we've come up with to deal with that sickness, to deal with the effects of our bad governance and the effects of our rigged political economy, right? Because what police do is essentially um, they're like I, – I think I made this point um, you know, when I went on, on Rising uh, during the, the protests in June – where I said, you know, like Marx, uh, Karl Marx famously once said that um, religion was the opiate of the masses. But I think you can make the case in the 21st century that the police in the United States are the opiate of the masses because they are a pain management system that we use to numb the effects of our bad governance and of our bad economy. You know, we use it to, you know, again, lock people up, lock away and suppress kind of these these um these pains that our society is feeling so that we don't feel them, right? And we're not learning from them. We're not learning from the bare fact that people are coming out in droves saying they want substantive change to our policing system. 
and saying that we need, you know, like universal health care because during a pandemic and an economic crisis where millions and millions have lost their jobs, people are screwed. And, you know, again, you can talk about, you know, you can moralize about that one way or the other. But the basic fact is that it's happening and it's the role of government should be to learn from and respond to the people they're they're ostensibly governing. And I think that the conversation that we're having now is taking place after, you know, just the umpteenth time of realizing that it really, really feels like our government is not learning from these things, is not responding to them. Because how else could you see that unprecedented uprising against the police state and then find a Democratic Party um, whose nominees, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris, you know, Biden actually literally proposed that we the police state <laughs> who built the police state and is now suggesting that we increase police funding. So, like, right. it, it seemed like just so. But he dresses it up with all these platitudes. Right. So yeah. it's like, again, people fall for the illusion. Now, the only thing I was going to say to add into what you're saying, and I think you're absolutely right on the money. No, no pun intended. But I would say that I think capitalism is the opiate of the masses. And, and what I see the police doing is it's like the police are almost like they're, they're protecting capital. That because this system that we have, I don't think people truly understand what capitalism has done to our society. It is a system that has produced a society where we have two people, two billionaires, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, who hoard more wealth than half of our entire population. Two people. And, and meanwhile, it, capitalism, while it's producing insane amounts of wealth up at the top, it is producing record amounts of injustice and inequality for ever, for you know almost everyone else and that to me is a system that's not working for the majority of the working people it's working for the oligarchs for the, you know for the for the giant corporations and for the corrupt politicians who do their bidding and when you were talking about like you know you turn on the tv and they're talking about the moral outrage of the looting what i where i'm seeing the moral outrage is that the, these talking heads on CNN and MSNBC, they're not talking about the real looting. You know, they're not talking about the fact that over the past 30 years, the top 1% gained $21 trillion in wealth, while the bottom 50% lost $900 billion in wealth. That is the only looting I care about. The fact that our politicians are rigging our system to prop up the ruling class and fuck over and rob and loot the working class. So if you wanna talk about a moral outrage, that to me is the moral outrage. All of this pain, all of this suffering is inflicted upon our corrupt politicians who take money from these corrupt oligarchs and these greedy CEOs and Wall Street and these giant corporations, feed these politicians their money, and then those politicians go in and do their bidding. They write laws that favor them and hurt the working class. And that to me is this rigged system that you know, people, these liberals have this fantasy that like, oh my God, we're going to get rid of Trump and everything's going to be great again. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's, for me, it's delusional. It's like our problem isn't one corrupt president. Our problem is that our entire system is corrupt. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head and, and this really goes to, you know, a point that I, that I made in that thread and that I, you know, would want to flesh out more here but it's something again that we talk about you know a lot um, with the workers that i interview on working people right is you know i said that that 
Democrats are, you know, just committed to not learning the lessons from 2016 that they should. Or, you know, they've chosen not to learn the lessons that we want them to, right? You know, like I said, I think that, that the one lesson that they did learn was that, you know, the working class is not a political constituency that they want to spend much time on anymore because they saw, you know, how quote-unquote fickle, you know, working class people can be um, by just either voting for Trump or not voting at all because they see nothing in either party that's going to help them because when Republicans and Democrats have been in office, you know, they've gotten screwed over one way or the other. Right? And I, and I, I really want to stress that for, for people, you know, who are listening who may be skeptical about this. Like, look, I know that Democrats are not Republicans and, you know, Republicans are not Democrats. There are differences between them. But again, just like we were saying before about the whole looting thing, it's like you can you can yell at working people that they should know what's better for them and that they should just suck it up and vote for Democrats. But the fact is, is like human beings and, you know, like the the reality that we're living in, that's not secondary, right? That is that is the stuff of politics. If people aren't voting for you, that's your problem, right? right. That's That means that you have to figure out a way to get them to vote for you. Not and just shaming the at, actual voters you need to win over. Like, shaming voters is not a good get-out-the-vote strategy. Like, newsflash. It's not. I mean, it's just not how people work. I get why people are frustrated, but just consider for a second, you know, how like what I know it seems ridiculous to you, this listener that I'm addressing. But like, I guess just consider for a second that, you know, circumstances may be um, such that, you know, people's lives aren't impacted, you know, like uh, to, to greater degrees, you know, like whether or not a Democrat or Republican is in office, because they're still, you know, busting their butt at one, two, three jobs just to try to get by. Uh, both parties have overseen the erosion of the welfare state and the social safety net, right? I mean, like what, I guess think about what you are asking people um, in, and think a little more about what reasons they may have for not seeing any sort of hope in kind of either party that is offered to them, right? I mean, again, those those concerns are not secondary. Right, and I think you're hitting on a big point is, well, maybe some more comfortable liberal voters and their minds are thinking, well, you know, Trump is just so egregious, which in many ways, yes, he is. But maybe like if you, if you have healthcare and you have a 401k and you have money in the bank and you have a job and you have all these things, then like, of course, maybe like you, the platitudes sound great because all your basic needs are met. But if you are a working class person who is working three jobs and cannot survive and can't keep your head above water, and this has been going on for decades, like you don't want to hear platitudes. Like platitudes don't mean anything. Platitudes aren't going to give you health care. You know, platitudes aren't going to give you a living wage. Platitudes aren't going to, you know, save our planet from the climate crisis. You know, platitudes aren't aren't going to do it like we need actual policies and i think a big ploy the democrats use to deflect from the fact that they have no real agenda or policy prescriptions for the working class is they scapegoat and blame everything on trump because he's an e easy target right i mean joe biden's entire campaign message is that donald trump is bad and that he is not donald trump that is the lowest political bar in history 
not being Donald Trump. Every single candidate in the Democratic primary wasn't Donald Trump either. And just being against Trump is not enough to move this country forward, especially when millions of, of poor and working class Americans are suffering. Don't tell me what you're against. Yeah, we're all against Trump. Tell me what you are fighting for. What bold policies do you support that will heal this nation? And that to me, therein lies the problem with corporate Democrats like Joe Biden, because they're not fighting for anything except their corporate donors and maintaining, you know, business as usual in Washington, DC. And so it just leaves me with this question is, if a political party, if a political party like the Democratic Party, if their central message is vote for us because the other team is worse, when millions of Americans are struggling to afford basic necessities like healthcare, housing, and food, then it is a big part of the problem too, right? Like, they're essentially just saying, well, they're worse, so vote for us, even though we're not going to do anything about all of this systemic inequality and injustice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think, one of the most um, kind of depressing realities over the past four years since, since the 2016 election is, like, if ever there was a moment of reckoning for the Democratic Party, it should have been when they blew an election to Donald freaking Trump, right? right? And and the the sad fact is is that I think I think that reckoning would in, entail kind of um, a, a nest. It would entail like kind of overhauling the very um, kind of political, economic, and ideological foundations that the New Democrats have spent the past 30 years uh, building and, and forcing kind of the Democratic Party into. And so, you know, reckoning with the reasons why they lost to Trump would mean kind of uh, giving over control of the party, um, giving it away from the people who led to this kind of situation in the first place. And this is what I mean when I say that the Democrats won't ever admit that their abandonment of the working class is part of, a big part of what has thrown the country into chaos, right? Because, not just because they've, they've like driven, you know, uh, dumb working class voters to Trump. Like I like I was saying, like the the key pockets of working class voters, primarily non college educated whites, you know, in swing states. Like there there is a an important lesson to learn there. But I think that the mainstream media got like super overzealous about pushing that narrative after 2016 because again, to your point, it was a narrative that allowed us to blame people, um, to blame the voters, and not to blame you know the party for creating the kind of effects in which, you know, they lost a massive amount of voters, you know, between 2012 and 2016. Or blaming the corrupt system that both establishment parties feed into. Exactly. And so, you know, in effect, you know, like the, the kind of neoliberal politics that the New Democrats have been pushing all this time, you know, the, the reasons that the ways that that those politics and those economics have um, kind of contributed to everything that we've talked about here, right? This kind of massive wealth inequality, this stagnating wages, right? You know, just um, the the kind of gradual um, hammering of unions and the loss of union density over decades, right? All these sorts of um, effects of concrete policy decisions and um, concrete, you know, ideologies made concrete in, you know, government, 
right? Those have all contributed to a working a working class that is disempowered, disaffected, and that sees no recourse in the Democratic Party, right? And if you th- those people are telling you that they don't see anything in your party worth voting for, and instead, you know, and that opens the door for Donald Trump to walk into office, right? That should tell you something is very, very wrong. And instead of learning from that, Especially because, like, not to interrupt you, but, like, he won them over, like, not even with policy, but just by kind of, you know, lying to them, essentially, by being this kind of, you know, selling them all these things and giving them all these false promises. Like, everyone's going to have free health care, you know? Like, he would just say, like, things that, like, obviously you knew weren't true, that he couldn't back up. But the people were so desperate, so they'll grab onto anything. And I think, like you said, that's what what the Democrat, corporate Democrats are missing is like, you open the door for fascism and for these these dictator, you know, these dictatorial and, and authoritarian leaders. When you abandon the people and you stop governing for the people, you know, you people get desperate, and so they'll bet the house on anything. And they bet the house on a con man who basically was just lying to them. But I think it shows how what a failure the Democrats have been that like they allowed Trump to do that with their own failure to speak to the needs of the working class. They did. And, and you know, this, this is um, something that hits very close to home, right? Because, you know, working people, my podcast, where, like I said, I interview workers about their lives, their jobs, their dreams and their struggles. You know, we really try to you know, really rehumanize ourselves and our fellow workers by not just treating each other like name tags and job titles, but as people with lives and histories and, and you know, just lots of experience and stories. The very first episode that I ever did was actually with my dad, Jesus Alvarez, who is a Mexican immigrant who grew up dirt poor, uh, who became a citizen in the 80s and who, you know, with my mom kind of fought tooth and nail to get, you know, to this like kind of middle class American dream that was all, you know, that evaporated with the 2008 crash, right? You know, we lost the house that I grew up in. We lost everything. And um, my dad voted for Trump, Right. And and I mean, granted, he is a lifelong Republican, but he's not a dumb guy, you know, he, and he talks about this in the very first episode that we did on working people where he said, like, look, you know, the recession happened. Um, we were told that, you know, the recovery was coming and that it was happening. Meanwhile, like, you know, things only got worse for us. We lost the house. We didn't get these kind of government, the government aid that, you know, we were told we could ask for. Um, and we, he felt left behind. He felt like, you know, if, if, if I've lost everything that I've worked my whole life for and now in 2016, one party is telling me to stay the course and to build on the, the kind of recovery of the Obama Obama years that that did not treat us kindly. There was a recovery for Wall Street, but not a recovery for Main Street. Right. So so my dad felt like he had nowhere else to go and and that he might as well kind of choose the devil that he doesn't know over the devil that he does. And again, people can be up in arms and, you know, they can they can say mean things about, you know, like working class voters who don't do what they want them to. But I think, you know, they should really take a second to think about kind of the the conditions that lead people to feel like they have no other option in the Democratic Party. And and you know, one other thing that I wanted one other point I wanted to make, right? Because hopefully this is this I think is that's open. a powerful story. Thank you for sharing about your father and I think, you know, the way I hear him, like I'm proud of him for just 
trying what he knew. I mean, look, you can't, when people are desperate, you cannot blame the people who are being taken advantage of by this rigged system. Like, your father did everything right. He did every single thing right. And I think that is the story of so many of us. We do everything right. We pay our taxes. We work. We, you know, we get educated. We do whatever we have to do. We buy a house. We try to live this quote-unquote American dream. But because the system is, is rigged against us and rigged against you know, people like your father that do everything right, look where it leads them. It leads them to a nightmare where everything they've worked so hard for gets taken away like that. And yet, when these Wall Street banks you know, speculate and cause a housing crash you know, because they're speculating and doing, engaging all this risky business, what happens to them? They get bailed out and saved by our government, right? So it's like all the banks got away with you know, crashing the economy, then they get bailed out while people like your father just get left and abandoned. And it's the same thing happening now in this pandemic. <laughs> Who got the first bailouts? The corporations, Wall Street, you know, the, the mega donors who, who control both parties, while the working people are, have been abandoned. We have 40 million Americans who could face eviction over the next three months. 30 million Americans are saying they're not getting enough to eat. Over 6 million Americans have lost their health care, you know, in the last few months. And so it's like at some point you wake up. And, and for me, my big awakening is like, is that I don't, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm a human being who is wide awake to the fact that we live in an oligarchy with two corrupt political parties who serve the ruling class. And you cannot have a government, if we ever wanna have a government that works for the people and works for people like your father and for the working class, you cannot have two political parties that both represent Wall Street. One party has to represent the worker. You know, one party has to represent the people. And we don't have that right now. We have two parties that essentially represent Wall Street, giant corporations, and wealthy CEOs. And so this is what we're gonna see. We're gonna see more inequality, more injustice, until we can break this rigged system. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, man. And this is this is, I think, you know, a, a plea that that I would want to make to, I guess, more liberal and centrist kind of folks out there who, you know, you know, I I Trust me, I've heard all the kind of responses to this kind of thing. I've heard all the, oh, so you just want four more years of Trump. You know, yeah, if you, you know, the browbeating kind of, well, if you don't vote, if, uh, if you don't vote, that's a vote for Trump, which that kind of seems ridiculous because then couldn't you just turn around and say, well, if I don't vote for Trump, is that a vote for Biden? Um, <laughs> right. You know, like it doesn't, that it doesn't, you know, again, like working people aren't stupid, right? You know, they're not going to kind of be browbeaten into submission when they face the kind of material consequences every day of the bad governance of these two parties and feel like no one is actually listening to them. Like that is the problem that we need to solve. And I think that one, you know, one thing that I really wanted to hammer home was, um, you know, this 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 belief that if Biden wins and and I think that maybe in the short term, picking Kamala Harris, tacking closer to the right, appealing to the never Trump crowd, I think that that should work this election cycle. Um, and I think that enough people, you know, recognize that Trump is a fascist and that this is, you know, like a nightmare that we need to start clawing our way out of. I think that will be enough, um, you know, unless, I mean, who knows, Trump is trying to destroy the postal service in front of our eyes and no one seems to be doing anything about it. So I guess don't, don't take too much stock in, in that. Um, 
But this belief that if we get Trump out of there, then the nightmare will be over. Things will start going back to normal. Like this is this is the kind of um, historical short sightedness that led to Trump in the first place. Right. Because what I tried to articulate in the thread, the Twitter thread that brought us together for this conversation. Right. Was that the kind of third way of the new Democrats that, you know, really kind of kicked off in the 90s with Bill Clinton. Right. This kind of democratic strategy to sort of shadow box um, Republicans out of the center right so that they could, you know, like be the Republicans that they wanted to beat. Um, What that has created over time is a situation in which that center right territory is claimed by the Democrats, which means that the Republican Party is left to be claimed by the farther right um, nut jobs who currently have control over that party. And if the Democrats are doubling down on that strategy right now and they i mean just look at the the democratic convention speaker list right they're giving like more uh speaking time to a republican john Kasich than to alexandria ocasio-cortez one of the most popular politicians in the country like that is a statement that is that is declaring loud and clear that we are the party of the center right uh we are the the reasonable republicans that we have been appealing to all this time Again, I think that that may pay off in this current election cycle, but what it's going to do is it's going to further create a vacuum in the Republican Party in which, quote unquote, reasonable Republicans no longer exist because they are now in the Democratic Party. And, you know, meanwhile, in four years, like what is the Democrats strategy um, for when, you know, like, you know, the, the populist illiberal right is eventually going to find someone who's more polished and more calculating than Trump. And when they do, right, this sort of centrist um, kind of compromising posture that doesn't stand for anything and that has no real working class uh, consistent support is going to be left powerless to combat it. And the left, it, it will have completely excise the left from its party and the left will have no institutional power to kind of counteract this far right party in the Republican Party. Like these are what I'm this is what I mean when I say that like abandoning the working class doubling down on these corporatist politics, um, deciding con- to make a concerted effort to appeal to upper middle class um, voters who are in this kind of never Trump camp, as opposed to learning the lessons from losing all the working class voters and trying to win them back. That has consequences. That has real consequences that, in, that of course, disproportionately impact the rest of us, not the people in power. And so the sooner we recognize that uh, the ways that we govern has consequences and that we can't just finger wag those consequences away and tell people to, you know, not not, you know, like be desperate when they live in a system that has made them desperate to not act desperately when that is all they have left. Right. That's just that's a fantasy. Yeah. Well, and I think you're you're making great points for me. It's like. I think our politics has become so tribal that like a lot of liberals miss the point that like politics isn't just about winning for your team. It's not just about winning for the blue team. It's about winning for the people. And and there's a big difference between beating Donald Trump and moving this country forward or beating Donald Trump and returning to business as usual. 
and the and 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 the latter is like what created Trump in the first place. Like you were saying, Biden is still pushing the same milk toast neoliberal policies that literally led to Trump in the first place. And and how in the hell is is Joe Biden and the corporate Democrats? How are they going to move America forward? after they win, when they resist all the progressive policies that we need to move our country forward. Like it really, when you just look at it in simplistic terms, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I think, you know, that these, these more centrist kind of corporate Democrats who only focus on how bad Trump is are completely missing the bigger picture. Kind of like I was alluding to earlier, America is not dying because of one corrupt president. America is dying because our entire system is corrupt. We live in an oligarchy where both major political parties serve the ruling class. And we have had 40 years of milquetoast neoliberalism and failed trickle-down economics for the working class. And 40 years of massive bailouts, tax breaks, subsidies, wealth transfers, and socialism for the giant corporations and the billionaire class. That is why America is dying. The problem is so much bigger than Donald Trump and the solution is so much bigger than just getting rid of Donald Trump. Trump didn't even bring us to this moment of despair. 400 years of predatory capitalism and systemic racism brought us to this moment of despair. And until we are ready to dismantle these corrupt systems and replace them with better systems that actually work for the working people of this country, then Joe Biden was right when he told a room full of rich donors that nothing will fundamentally change. It is the most honest statement Joe Biden has ever made in his career. Um, are, are liberals missing the bigger picture here? Well, you know, I think, I think the, the, first of all, I thought that was beautifully put, and I think you're exactly right. And, you know, again, I, my plea to listeners who, you know, are perhaps not as left as we are, is like, again, we, we know, you know, like your objections to this, we've heard them, we know that, you know, people are going to get up in arms about, you know, not like making more of a concerted effort to get Trump out of office. But what we're saying is that this, again, I think a lot of people are just going to grit and bear it and vote for Joe Biden, you know, like in November, if they are allowed to, if, you know, like, uh, Trump, you know, like doesn't completely dismantle the post office if, you know, they are willing to risk their lives to go vote in person again during a pandemic that has only gotten worse. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of ifs there. And, you know, I guess what what we're saying is that, um, you know, yeah, like you said, getting Trump out of office is not going to solve the reason the problems that put him there in the first place. And I think that one of those problems that really speaks to who the Democrats are and and who they're not, right? And this is this is some a point that I really tried to drive home in that Twitter thread, right? Is that this is what a technocratic style of governance looks like, right? This is this is to know what it means to govern technocratically, right, is to, you know, like impose a top-down decision-making power structure um, through which all political changes, big or small, generally small, have to go, right? You know, this is this is why, you know, I argued that, like, in fact, you know, the the Democratic Party actually kind of hates popular uprisings like the ones that we saw this this summer. 
even though, you know, Fox News is talking about how Nancy Pelosi is, is you know, like joining BLM or whatever, right? That's all scaremongering crap. But like the fact that Democrats are kind of symbolically trying to co-opt the message of these uprisings, but not address the substantive changes that they're calling for, right? You know, that, that doesn't mean that they're in favor of these uprisings. That means that they are trying to kind of sap them of their political energy and reroute that energy through the Democratic Party apparatus itself, right? And that's that that's what technocracy looks like. Again, it's a, it's a system in which um, the people at the top, the people who control the party, are the ones who decide what changes and what doesn't. And that's why, even though you know policies like Medicare for all. Um, are you know can be so popular but yet the democratic standard bearer of the party Joe Biden can still wave away any mention of it because that's not what technocrats don't respond to popular pressure well and i also think it's really important to make a point at home here is technocrats want to keep this corrupt system in place because the corrupt system feeds them right the reason they don't want medicare for all is because one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party and to corporate Democrats are these giant insurance companies. And Medicare for All will get will 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 get rid of a lot of the giant insurance companies. So while Medicare for All will be good for the people and good for the working class and the middle class, it, it's not good for 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 the corrupt system that the Democrats want to keep in play. It's it's not good for for, for people and politicians that want to maintain the status quo and, and keep these these donations coming in from these giant insurance companies, right? That's the only, I mean, when 88% of Democratic voters support Medicare for all and 70% of all voters now support Medicare for all, and yet the Democratic Party, who claims to be for the people, doesn't support that policy, it is simply because of money. They want to keep taking money from these giant insurance companies and they don't want any structural change that might help the people because it will hurt their corporate donors. Yep. I think that's exactly right. And this and we can't we have to say it because like that's what's happening. And it's like, you know, I get a lot of flack from people for saying that. But CNN doesn't say that MSNBC doesn't say that. And so, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people just aren't informed. Like I have some liberals come to me and be like, I had no idea the giant insurance companies are one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. I thought they only gave to the Republican Party. And I was like, newsflash, these giant corporations and oligarchs. They, they hedge their bets. They give about half their money to Republicans and half their money to corporate Democrats. So whether the red team wins or the blue team wins in an election, they win no matter what because they own and control both parties. That to me is like the stupidity of all of this that like while, while liberals are watching MSNBC and MSNBC is telling them that like conservatives are the problem and conservatives are watching Fox News and Fox News is telling them liberals are the problem, like they're both wrong. The problem is that is the corrupt politicians and the oligarchs are rigging the system, you know, for the 1% and against the 99%, but the 99% are too busy fighting each other to notice that the system is being rigged against them all. Yeah. No, I think I think that's exactly right, man. And you know, it's 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 a I guess it's a tale as old as capitalism, right? right? It's a tale as old as this country even. And and that's both a depressing reality, but hopefully it should also be um an energizing one as well. Because I think what you know people need to understand, right, is that um like you said, the, the the reason that there is this huge disconnect between, you know, what we expect the Democratic Party to be, what we want it to be, what we were raised to believe it was, uh, there's a disconnect between that 
and what it actually does. And there are only so many times the party can make the excuse that, oh, Republicans would never let us pass us pass that anyway, so we're not even going to try, right? You know, or, you know, that's not practical. And what they mean by that, like you said, by practical, that means like that's going to lose us donors if we rock the boat, if we bite the hand that feeds, as it were. Right. And I guess to just drive that point home, right, like I, I think the Wall Street Journal this week had a cover story with Biden and Kamala Harris on it. And the headline was something like with the with the Harris VP pick, Wall Street breathes a sigh of relief. Yep, and that was exactly- it was just it was just so disheartening because, you know, I guess what I would ask listeners to think about is like just imagine a world in which that sort of headline read, you know, with this ticket, right, with with this kind of nomination, working people who have been exploited and beaten down for so long finally see hope, right, finally feel like they are being heard. Like the fact that that is is that sounds so ridiculous and so out of step with the reality we live in should should clue you into how deeply sick and how far gone our political system is and how desperately we need to change it. Well, that should have been the headline. The headline should have been, you know, working people finally feel hope in this nation for the first time. But instead, the headline is and I read it too and I was outraged, Wall Street breathes a sigh of relief. And I'm thinking in my head while literally working people are struggling to keep their head above water and dying, you know, working people are the most impacted by this coronavirus. And so it's like, it to me, yeah, it is. It shows how dis, you know, it's, it, it shows that the real, the real primary was just getting rid of Bernie Sanders, getting rid of the one who was challenging the status quo and trying to, you know, make life better for working people in this country. And so like if Wall Street's celebrating this ticket, that means they know that Biden and Kamala won't rein in their greed. And what that means is that working, you know, it's like if you don't hold Wall Street accountable and they keep doing what they're doing and the wealth keeps going up there, guess what happens? That means that the working people keep getting screwed over. You know, someone always gets screwed over. And I think for me is like if the working people have carried this nation on their back for so long, like it's finally time for like these giant corporations and these CEOs and Wall Street to finally start to like pay their fair share or like, you know what I mean? Like it's time for them to put in more. It's time for them to like actually help the people in this country. And that to me is what's so outrageous is that here the system is so rigged and they just want to keep rigging it against the people. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, man. And if you want you want a contemporary example of this, look no farther than, you know, the the thrashing and whining that Uber and Lyft are doing in California. Um, now that, uh, you know, a judge has essentially ordered them to, you know, pay their workers a living wage and treat them like employees instead of this kind of bullshit independent contractor thing that has taken advantage of people like my dad who had to drive Uber after we lost our house and everything else, right? And, you know, I have a lot of other family members who drive for Uber and Lyft. And, and yeah, like they've seen their rates go down. They've, they've had to stay out longer and longer. They, they don't get benefits, right? Everything that Silicon Valley calls innovation, or I guess 98% of what Silicon Valley calls innovation, is just finding new ways to screw over workers and get around labor law. And now that you know these companies are being told that they actually have to abide by the law, pay their workers what you know they are legally owed uh, as employees – 
Uber and Lyft are throwing a tantrum and threatening to basically leave the state. Like that is what a rigged system looks like, a system in which these giant companies that take advantage of people and that are constantly pointed to as the true source of capitalist innovation, if they are told that they actually have to treat their workers like human beings who need to make a living and need to feed themselves and their families, then they threaten to leave. They, they say that like we can't make that work. Well, like then you couldn't make it work in the first place. And that should tell you that that there's something really fundamentally wrong here because the the need for working people to live, you know, like to live their lives, to not starve, to have a roof over the heads, that should be non-negotiable. That shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't be a, a, even a, a reality in this country. But and yet, we're always finding kind of new ways to justify it. And that, I think, really speaks to kind of the the, the kind of situation that we're in right now. And if there's any kind of parting uh, hope that I could offer to folks listening out there... And this gets back to kind of the the technocratic soul of the current Democratic Party and and the the belief that I want people to have that it do, it wasn't always that way and it doesn't have to be that way in the future is like you know I'm a I'm a historian by training and when I think about kind of uh, the political history of this country you know it is littered with people fighting for what they need and fighting for the things that we take for granted in this country. We've lost a lot. Working people have lost a lot in this country, but we still have more to lose. And those things that we do have, like the weekend, like the eight-hour workday, right? You know, like these kind of basic necessities. Government, technocrats in government didn't just hand those out to working people. Technocrats in government didn't just kind of decide that, you know, the Civil Rights Act should be passed, right? Those things happen because people rose up and demanded them and pushed their government to adequately represent them and their needs. But what we have ended up with now, especially with the Democratic Party, is this kind of um, delusion that government is just going to take care of everything, that these people that we're putting in power, that they're going to give us what we need and, and we don't need to kind of pressure them. But what we're seeing is that when that pressure arises, like it has this summer, like, you know, not just with the anti-police protests, but with the damn pandemic itself and just this terrifying reality that working people are living in, like that should tell you that government should be doing something and doing it now and and taking drastic action. But instead, they're not like that is that is just a true sign of the fallacy of believing that government, especially governmental bodies that are funded by the very people who are exploiting us, they're not just going to give us what we need, you know, of their own volition, right? We need a party that responds to the needs of people and that actually listens to what people are telling them. And right now we don't have that. And that is a huge, huge problem. Yeah, a very wise man by the name of Frederick Douglass once said that power concedes nothing without a demand. And, and you're absolutely right. Like, we have to demand better. You know, while it's like while they're vote shaming us and saying, get in line and toe the party line. Like, I I, I mean, I'm, I haven't endorsed Joe Biden. I've actually said that I will not support Joe Biden unless he supports Medicare for all. Like, I drew my litmus test there. Like, because for me, it's like when 88% of, the, of our party or it's not even my party anymore because I unregistered two months ago over the, seriously, like that's, I've been a Democrat for 18 years and I unregistered from the party two months ago 
because they are refusing to support the policies that the people want. And that's not a democratic party to me. The party is not even a democratic party. It's a center-right corporate extremist party. And yes, the Republican Party is a far-right party, but but things, how are we ever going to heal this nation if we have two right-wing parties that both serve, you know, the needs of the rich and the ruling class and are ignoring the, the working class? Like, things will never get better that way. So I feel like we have to be bold. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, FDR didn't just sign the New Deal. There was pressure from the Communist Party, from the Socialist Party. There were movements back then that actually pressured FDR. You know, everyone praises him as like this, you know, progressive giant now, but like he wasn't really all that progressive when you study him. You know, like he had to be pushed for the Green New Deal, or excuse me, for the New Deal. And if we're going to get the policies we need to heal this nation, if we're going to get Medicare for all, if we're going to get a $20 an hour living wage, which I think is a, is a fair wage in this day and age, uh, if we're going to get, you know, a Green New Deal, we are going to have to fight for those things and demand those things. Um, and, and, you know, I wanted to kind of ask you, you know, I want to kind of wrap the conversation up and ask you just about the, the party overall. Um, because look, for, for the last 40 years, if we're being frank here, the DNC has been forcing progressives to compromise our values and vote for their corporatist candidates. Every election, right, for the last 40 years is the most, is the quote unquote, most important in history. We end up handing them power. And then they govern just like Republicans for their corporate donors and the country keeps moving further right. So my question, like, why do progressives keep tolerating this abuse from the DNC? As you said, you know, two weeks ago, the DNC voted down Medicare for all. And this week it was, it was revealed that the DNC is giving Republican John Kasich and oligarch Mike Bloomberg more speaking time than the entire squad. Uh, they're giving AOC 60 seconds, who's the only one from the squad they invited. I mean, they are clearly telling us that they don't want us. Why do progressives keep tolerating this? I mean, honestly, I think a big part of it is out of desperation, right? Is we half out of desperation because, you know, we just don't have a system in which third parties are viable, right? And that's that's a problem, right? That's a that's a real big, you know, problem for, you know, democracy if if that is indeed the thing that we believe we should be fighting for, right? Um I think that, you know, like just in the absence of um any sort of kind of party apparatus that that could rival those of the Democratic and Republican parties. You know, we've we've at least felt that, you know, like we could try to push kind of dem the Democratic Party a little further left because not just because we want to, but because, you know, those the principles represented by progressives and leftists are the ones that we believe are most representative um, of the needs of working people and the the things that that we need to do to address them, right? This isn't just some sort of like ideological horse race, right? This is this is you know about actually kind of addressing just the 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 world sized injustice of so many people in prison, of so many people not knowing where their next meal is going to come from, of so many people, you know, not having any voice at work who could be fired by the whims of their boss just for, you know, for nothing, right? Um, you know, the the world-sized injustice of the damage that we are doing to our planet, like, it almost feels like the problems in our society are so big that our response, by and large, is to ignore them. And that's, 
that, that is just a recipe for disaster. And I think that, you know, like sensing that sort of the stakes of all of that, progressives have felt that, you know, it's going to take a long time to try to find some sort of, you know, kind of third party challenge to this. So we might as well try to kind of do damage control, throw our support behind the Democrats. But I think I think what this election cycle has shown, you know, like you said, I think it has really, really clarified the fact that the Democratic Party does not want us, right? You know, like the yeah. the flat out, like that's what the, that's the message they're sending. Like they had 2016 to like listen to this amazing, you know, populist uprising that was progressive, that was multiracial. You know, the coalition Bernie builds, they are multiracial. They and they're progressive. They, 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 they didn't want, they fought tooth and nail to end Bernie's coalition in 2016. And then again in 2020, I have never, you know, since I've had my political awakening, even though I did vote for Bernie in 2016 in the primary, because I, even then I could see that that's what we needed. Um, but I, I was like a good little Democrat back then. I got right in line behind Hillary uh, after Bernie lost. Whereas this time, like I'm not getting right behind Biden. Like I, we need way more. And, and I guess the point I'm making is like, here in 2020, like I have never seen the Democratic Party fight harder against Bernie Sanders and, and the progressive coalition he was putting together than they've ever fought against the Republicans. Like they're literally fighting harder to take down a progressive movement than they fight to take down a fascist movement. And like what else, like what other, what else do you need to see? Like that's where I'm like, yeah, I know it's hard to build a, a new major party, but the DNC has shown us over and over again, over decades, who it is and who it wants to be. It wants to be a corporate party that caters to Wall Street and its wealthy donors. So at some point, you know, why are progressives fighting so hard to try to change a party that clearly doesn't want to change? It looks to me like we're fighting the wrong fight. Shouldn't we be putting all of that energy into building our own party? because that is what will really pressure them to change when they have to start actually earning and competing for votes. Because right now, like we talked about in this podcast, their whole message is vote for us because the other team is worse. And that's not the kind of politics that will ever heal this nation or benefit the working class. So I guess my question is, do you think that the Democratic Party will ever be a true party for the people and the working class? Or do the people need to come together and, and build our own party and take back our power in electoral politics? You know, I think I think it is um, kind of the question that we need to answer, you know, and, and pretty quickly, because like I said, I with a lot of caveats, you know, like things could probably and should probably go Biden's way um, this election cycle. But again, we have a an increasingly fascistic uh, White House, so don't bet on that. And and you should have a, pri a plan for some for responding if and when he tries to you know reject the election results or keep the election from happening. Um, but you know, say Biden gets in this time around, like I said, like the Democrats, there are going to be consequences to this political strategy of theirs to move farther right, move farther right every time. Like you said, like, I think it tells you everything you need to know, not only that the Democratic establishment, like, exerts way more efforts into squashing the progressive, you know, wing, as it were, than it does kind of fighting, you know, the, the Republicans, but 
you know, the the party, the centrists in the party are always stressing the virtue of compromise, right? They believe in it as kind of the necessary um, component of good governance, of finding a balance between left and right, of finding a balance between the super rich and the working class, right? That is that is their ideology, is balancing the social kind of tensions and contradictions of democracy. But again, what, I think what leftists like myself are kind of trying to tell people is that just like the this strategy had long-term consequences that led to Trump, you know, 20 years down the road, it's going to have consequences is now where if you become basically the the center right party right you're going to leave the Republican party to go even harder right and this is what it's been doing actually over these past decades and for a party that loves to stress the need to compromise the democrats are always compromising to the right they're never compromising to the left and i have to right? stop you for one second because you're right though because here's the thing is what you said about you know compromise, the, the, you know they they always stress we need to compromise and find balance. But it would be one thing if the Democratic Party was actually a left party, right? That actually was fighting for Medicare for all and fighting for the working class and and not catering to their corporate donors and being a Wall Street party. It'd be one thing, right? If they were a real left party and then they were compromising with a right party like the Republicans. Then we would kind of find moderate solutions that help the working class a little and help the help the ruling class. But that's not the compromises that are happening. And I think that's what we have to make clear. The Democratic Party is not a left party. The Democratic Party is a center-right corporatist party. So when these compromises are happening, and they've been happening over the last 40 years, what you're getting is a compromise between a center-right corporatist party and a compromise between a, a far-right fascist party. And those kind of compromises between a center-right and a right party only help the billionaire class and the ruling class and the corporations. Compromises between two right-wing parties aren't helping the working class at all. And that, to me, is the problem. Is Does that make sense? Like, you can't... Yes, great, I would love to compromise if the Democratic Party was actually a working-class party. Then the compromises would bear fruit for all the people in this nation. But those aren't the compromises that we're having right now. And I think that, to me, speaks to the need for a real left party. And uh, spoiler alert, I've been helping uh, Bernie's national coordinator from 2016, uh, Nick Branna. Uh, he is planning a, a people's convention on August 30th. And the, the, the two keynote speakers are Nina Turner and, and Cornell West. And the idea is obviously this election cycle is, you know, it's not enough time to build a real uh, progressive populist party. Uh, but the idea is to start organizing a movement for a major uh, left progressive populist party uh, for 2022 and 2024. And because the idea is, yeah, like you, I think Biden will win. But like he said, nothing will fundamentally change. So we, if the idea on August 30th is to have a convention and it's going to be televised or it's going to be streamed on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and, and to hear a vision for a party that, that doesn't force voters to vote for the lesser of two evils, uh, a party that actually puts the, the people's needs first and, and actually supports the policies, the populist policies that people want and, and will put you know, working class people over, over corporate greed and, and, and the corporate welfare that drives so much of our politics. So, uh, and I don't know if you were aware of that, but that is, the, you know, the organizing is happening not because we're trying to throw off Biden or, or the Democrats. I mean, it's, not, or, or it's not happening for 2020. It's happening already for 2022 and 2024. 
Yeah, no, I I think I think you're you're absolutely right, and this is this is one of the things that that kind of makes me want to bash my head against the wall, because you know you you really wonder. It's like you know when you you want to shake Democrats and be like, do you not see how in fact you're the Republicans are winning with this strategy, right? Because we're seeing it right now, right? As soon as Biden announced that Harris was going to be his VP pick, right? You had Trump, you had, you know, people on Fox News saying like, uh, oh, Kamala Harris is a Marxist. Like she's the farthest left VP ever in the history of whatever, right? And like the thing is, is like, Republicans have said that about like literally every Democratic politician I can think of. And like, instead of just laughing it off and being like, well, you know, you guys are full of shit. Clearly, like, you don't know what left politics looks like. The Democrats have constantly conceded to this strategy and they've moved farther right to kind of prove Republicans wrong, not realizing that, well, moving right is what the Republicans want to do. So you're in effect giving them exactly what they want because you're too afraid to stand up to kind of unfounded criticisms that, you know, you're the Marxist party of you know, of the of the American political scene, right? Like, it's so ludicrous uh, to be laughable. But what's even worse is that the Democrats fall for it every single time. And every time that they do, they shift the Overton window of our political uh, scene farther and farther to the right. And that's why, like you said, we've ended up with a basically a far right and a quote unquote center right party that is constantly moving farther and farther to the right to prove that it's not as far left as the Republicans will always say that they are. And sooner or later, you have to learn from that. You have to realize that, you know, this is a losing strategy unless, like we've been talking about here, this is actually what they want. This is actually where the kind of core of the power centers of the Democratic Party want to be. And if that's the case, then I think that you're right, that, you know, as from what we've seen, especially in this kind of election cycle, the ways that we've seen kind of all the lip service that is paid to the kind of um, more progressive energy that is generated in the Democratic Party and the ways that when it really counts, the power centers of the party will always kind of squash that energy and tack to the right and and compromise with the right. So it's like they 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 want to kind of ride the the enthusiasm that people like AOC and the squad generate, but they never ever want to concede any power um in the within the party to that progressive wing. And I think that you're right that, you know, after this election cycle, when we've seen just how resistant those power centers within the Democratic Party are to ever compromising to this progressive wing that is really speaking to the needs of working people, you know, eventually you're going to have to kind of decide when you've had enough, right? When people have had enough with this party that, you know, right is now. not... Yeah. And I think I honestly, I think after this election, um, most people will have had it. Hey, do you support that idea of building a, a major uh, progressive populist party? Sure, man. I mean, I don't like I sure as hell hate the fucking system we have now. I'm, <laughs> like I'm kind of like I guess I guess the point is, is like, you know, understanding all the criticisms that I've heard to that proposition my entire life. And having seen my entire life, like you said, every four years, it's the most important election we're ever going to face. The Republican Party is more dangerous now than they ever have been. And like, I believe that. 
But there's only so many times that I that that can be the case when the Democratic Party is the only one not kind of rising to that challenge, right? People have risen to that challenge when they say this is the most important election, right? People have realized that like even though they hate the Democratic Party or they don't feel like they have a future in the Democratic Party, they'll they'll suck it up and vote for them. And yet here we are with all the kind of consequences of bad governance kind of laid bare during this pandemic and economic crisis. And the Democratic Party is stressing the same shit that it was stressing 30 years ago. So if each new election is the most important election, then why are the Democrats not responding to that with a politics that matches that level of importance? Instead, they're just responding with the same shit. Well, if this is truly the most important election in history, Joe Biden and the DNC, then why are you not supporting a policy in Medicare for all during the middle of a pandemic when millions of Americans are losing their health care and this policy is supported by 88% of your voters and you're going to reject that policy? Like in the most important election in history, when you need to be energizing your base, you're going to deflate them by not supporting the policies that your base wants? Like to me, it's just so plain and simple. And I get it. It's like, it is terrifying. The idea of starting a new political party, something that we haven't really seen success with here in a very long time, it's daunting. But if you look at our neighbors in the North, Canada, they did it. And right after they started a new major party, guess what? They all got universal health care. And Mexico just had success. They just started a new party. And same thing happened there. So for me, I, th I look at Donald Trump as a symptom to our problems. And the disease is our corrupt political system that has been rigged for the ruling class and, and to prop up the ruling class and rigged against the working class. And if we're ever going to fix this nation or save this nation, beating Donald Trump is just, it's like the, it's the small, it's the starting point. It's the floor. It's not the ceiling. The ceiling for me is breaking this two-party duopoly that has a control over our politics. And it'd be one thing if one of the parties was like actually supporting the policies people want, but when both parties are beholden to these special interests and the fossil fuel industry and these giant insurance companies and these oligarchs and the oligarchs are getting richer and the corporate profits are, are soaring while millions of working class Americans are struggling, at some point you gotta realize like the duopoly's not working and we gotta break through it. It's scary, but why don't we try? And that's like what we're trying to do with the People's Party. So uh, if anyone wants to check that out, you can go to peoplesconvention.org. It is going to be on August 30th. We It's going to be for two hours. And we're just going to talk about kind of the plans to build a party. And also, it's not just building a party. It's also uh, doing direct action on the ground. Like we've done this in the last three months, we've held rallies outside of Congress people's homes demanding a people's bailout. So it's a party that's going to actually do stuff that's, that's, that, that the communities want and it's going to be in the streets and actually like direct action protests and also building for an actual major party uh, in, the, in the near future. So please check that out. And also, again, I just want to thank uh, uh, Maximilian Alvarez for coming on the podcast. Uh, Maximilian, where can people find your podcast? I want all my listeners to go right now and, and start streaming, downloading, whatever your podcast. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And and yeah, I think I think this sounds really, really great. And I look forward to uh, to checking out, you know, the developments with this 
with this campaign because I think, like you said, it's definitely necessary. And I guess the only other plea that I would make to people is that, you know, we need to also in that same effort, and it sounds like this is what you're angling for, is we need to break this kind of notion that politics only happens every four years, that it only happens um, in the halls of Congress, right? People have been have have either given away or or had their political agency taken away, their sense of political agency, their sense of that they are the ones who make history, right? That's what that that's what this technocracy has stolen from us. It's stolen from us the, any semblance uh, of an, uh, any notion that that we are the ones who you know make the changes that we need. Um, and and I think that any sort of movement for a new party or for a new working class movement has to take place on the shop floor, has to reach people in their communities, has to respond to what you know their needs are, has to listen to and lift up um, the working people that we are trying to fight for. Um, so I, yeah, wholeheartedly, um, you know, endorse that. And I think, uh, you know, it'll be really exciting to see where that goes. And, you know, part of that is, is you know, talking to working people, right? Not just talking about workers. And this is really the soul of my show, Working People, right? Like I said, it's it's just mainly me interviewing workers from all over the country. You know, I've interviewed shipbuilders, gig workers, sex workers, teachers, um, coal miners, people who work in the main logging industry, all sorts of people from all walks of life. We talk about their lives and, you know, their jobs, their dreams, their struggles and everything. And, you know, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, we are a show that is done in partnership with In These Times Magazine, a really great labor-focused magazine. So you can find our page on their website as well. Um, our Twitter handle is at uh, WorkingPod. Um, you can also find the link there to our Patreon page where we have a lot of great bonus interviews that I've done with organizers and scholars and stuff like that. So a lot of great content out there for anyone who wants to kind of listen to the you know, the voices and struggles of, of everyday working people. And how can people follow you on, on Twitter? Oh, I'm on there. Let me see. What am I? I think I'm, <laughs> I always forget. <laughs> I think it's a, uh, but it's Maximilian Alvarez. I think it's Maximil underscore ALV. Um, but if you find the working people page, uh, you know, it says hosted by me. So I'm under there. Perfect. But yeah. And I'll, ta- and I'll tag you when I, when I upload this. Well, uh, Maximilian, this has been fantastic. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed uh, this conversation and, uh, Let's uh, stay in touch and keep fighting for a, a better future. Hell yeah, brother. Right back at you. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Amped Up. I just want to thank uh, Maximilian Alvarez again for coming on. And I hope you check out our uh, his podcast, uh, The Working People. You can get that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you uh, download your podcasts. And it's that time where I want to thank all of our Patreon subscribers for making this podcast today possible. I want to thank uh, William McLaughlin, DJ Comatos, Frank Cardenas, uh, Joyce Yang, Jeremy Leeming, Liz Kirkland, William Holtz, Trent Tobler, Michael Hardy, Molly Secors, Insurgent, Alexandra Orso, Patty Cleary, Walter Hackett, Alan Wood, Russell Whitworth, Ruben Sanchez Jr., Elizabeth Kim, John Lloyd IV, 
Eileen O'Farrell and Mary Fancher. Thank you so much uh, for supporting the podcast. And if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash proudsocialist. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I will catch you next week with an all new episode.